The Athletic. Race is on, and Audi's deal to acquire a stake in Sauber to become its works Formula One team in 2026 has been announced. But what does it mean for the Swiss team, and will it be able to re-emerge as a race-winning operation, having briefly got to the front in F1 in its BMW guys? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Jack Nichols and Scott Mitchell-Malm, and we'll also have another appearance from two-times world champion Mika Hakkinen. Well, Jack Nichols, special guest, welcome. A pleasure to be here. I'm... I'm... I like the opinion that people don't listen to the Checker Flag podcast because I'm annoying and now they've turned on the race because they like the race and then I'm on here as well and then, then now I'm going to annoy them too. So. This is all part of a big strategic ploy to direct people back to the Checkered Flag po- exactly. podcast. Exactly. They'll be like, well, if he's on both of them, I might as well listen to the Checker Flag because that's just better. I was going to say if I needed to plug anything you do, but uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. you've, you've got that in you got, very well. Got, got any books out or anything? Uh, no. Should I write a book? What should I write? Maybe I should write a book about the Checker Flag podcast and my time and memories on it. <laughs> Checker Flag podcast, the autobiography. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that will sell as many as three or four copies. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I'd buy them all. And of course, the danger with Jack is he is a professional broadcaster, so he'll show the rest of us up. So I'll try and not let him talk too much. And also, Scott Mitchell Malm. Hello, Ed. Hello. I didn't have a question for you, though. I just said your name. Yeah, you got confused because I talked before the official introduction, which I think has thrown you a little bit. I'm never really sure what to do when that happens. What's the official procedure to do if a, t- if a guest talks before they're meant to? Um, you never invite them back on. That tends because they're sloppy broadcasters. I, is that all I needed to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I see through your plan, Scott Mitchell Malm. But unfortunately, you've got too many insightful things to say about Audi and Sauber. So uh, we'll see about that. To, we're going to have to let you continue. We won't throw you out of the room. So let's talk about what we're actually here to talk about, which is indeed the Audi Sauber deal that we've known has been coming for a while. So what's now been made official, Scott? So what we now know for sure is, as widely expected, that uh, Sauber will be Audi's works team in 2026. There are a few things that are still slightly unknown. Um, the specifics of how much of a of a stake Audi will be buying, uh, the process that with by which they will acquire that stake. So we don't know if it'll be 50%, 75 100%. We don't know really sort of the whether it will go in stages like has been expected. But I my, my guess is it's going to be um it's going to be a significant and majority stake i think finn rousing will retain partial ownership of sauber i don't think he wants to let go completely and it will all be done in time for the 2026 season because there is no rush for sauber sauber to become audi before then there's an alfa romeo title sponsorship deal that runs to the end of 2023 uh there's Ferrari customer engine deal that will run in 24 and 25. My guess there would be that Sauber will continue, will we'll run under the, the Sauber name, reverting to the Sauber name after the Alpha deal ends. And then it's 2026 onwards, it will become out and out Audi. Um, so I think that's sort of broadly what, I think that's broadly what to expect. That's what hasn't been confirmed so far. It's the basics of the deal for now that Sauber will become Audi's works team. It will be done for 2026. Um, and yeah, there are some more answers that we still need to find, but it's just, this has been long rumoured for such a long time that it's quite good that this is now out in the open. And it'll be interesting to see how it evolves from here because it's a big opportunity for Sauber and there are some question marks that Audi need to answer as well. Yeah, some very big question marks. Are you excited about this deal, Jack? I think it's, it is because Alfa Romeo, the, the Alfa Romeo deal for me, you know, it's not a proper manufacturer entry. It's a, it's a sponsorship thing. And whilst Alfa Romeo is a very cool and, and I'd love one, and it's great to have them back in the in 
the series. Was that you appealing for a free Alfa Romeo there? No, we, it, we no. Frown on that sort and of I thing. must he, say no, that he's taking advantage of the fact that he's not on the BBC podcast at the moment, <laughs> and he can actually say this sort of thing. Uh, other Italian sports cars are available. Any political views you'd like to share? Uh, later, I think that um, Alfa Romeo is cool, but it's not a it's not a proper works entry. And will we ever see another proper works entry? I don't know because even this Audi entry is sort of a it's similar. Well it's sort of almost identical to the BMW entry. And I can't really remember the last time a, a manufacturer entered F1, like fully just doing everything by themselves. I don't know when the last time that happened was. Well, this is the first out and out new thing across the board for a while, or not a new team, sorry, but it's similar in Renault taking over Lotus from the team side, but Renault had an existing engine program then. So this has kind of taken the Renault re-entry in 16 and the Honda project that started in 15. The last out and out new one probably is Toyota. That went well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very, very successful. Common thread, Alan McNish. We do expect uh, McNish to be be part of this in in some capacity, whether that's, uh, I think that might be bad news for for Fred Vasseur, who is uh, currently the team principal there. But that is one of the deals, that one of the details, sorry, of the deal that we don't know the answer to yet. They're using phrases like Sauber being the strategic partner of Audi and the works team. There there will obviously be an influence from the Audi side. Exactly what that means in terms of personnel needs to be decided because I think all we've heard so far relates to the engine side of things. So Adam Baker is the, I guess, the Audi F1 CEO. We know that one of the the board members is responsible for, for the Audi project, I think from a corporate point of view. My guess would be that in the interim... Fred will continue to be the team principal there, but it would, and I'm not saying this because I want to see changes at that team, but it's kind of hard to see Audi doing this when they're, and especially when they're buying a stake and it's probably going to be a majority stake and not wanting to exert their own influence and control. They will want their own people on the ground, won't they? Yeah, I think the, the cool thing is how long has Formula One been trying to get the Volkswagen Audi group in the sport? I swear all regulation changes are to try and get VW Audi and even back to the the 90s I remember picking up a you know you'd pick up a copy of F1 Racing or something and the front page would be a mock-up of a VW Audi entry even back to the 90s so the fact that they've finally pulled it off is I think shows the positive way that the, the that F1's going and it's a testament to the engine regulations and sometimes you know I think the engine regulations in F1 are they end up, it feels like they end up being overly expensive just to please manufacturers. And how important are manufacturers to F1? Everyone will talk about the 60s and 70s where you just bought a Cosworth for 50 quid and stuck it in the back and that's the best F1 ever. I'm, I don't particularly subscribe to that. But if these engine regs have brought in a new manufacturer and, and is creating other manufacturer interest, then that is that is positive. So something this, this entry has been on the cards not only for a long time this year, but for decades really. The point you make about exactly how much involvement Audi has in terms of the running and the management of it is an interesting one because it'll never be with an automotive manufacturer or a company this size just buying a team and leaving it to do what it wants to do. There'll always be some involvement. There'll be some management direction definitely going on. In the BMW Sauber days, Peter Sauber still owned a, a percentage of the team in that time, but it was very much BMW. But I guess that's the question, Scott, how they work their way through the next few years of integrating in a productive way while not disrupting the progress that they need to make. Because this team can't just hang around for the next couple of years waiting for 2026. They need to make some big steps before then. Yeah, there'll be some low-hanging fruit. We, we know that uh, Sauber has struggled to initially get up to the to the budget cap 
Um, I'm fairly confident that the the Audi deal will take care of that and um, probably well, a bit well, more on top with all of the other stuff outside of the um, exemptions. Well, their plan always was to be on the cost cap for next year. Yeah, exactly. So I think the the Audi the Audi deal will be will be key to that. So so that will take care of a a, a little bit of the gap. It's inevitable. It will ultimately we are in a budget cap era, but money still is almost in effect a guarantee of extra performance. So that so that will help nudge Sauber along. The the thing that will take a little bit longer, and this is something that Valtteri Bottas has talked about having moved from Mercedes to to Sauber and Alfa Romeo this year, is that they, they are lacking in the particularly on production, I think. I think they're doing a good job now having reinforced the design department, the development side of things. I think that side of things is closer to where it needs to be but I, th- I think they are still a bit too slow on production but Valtteri has pinpointed that so I think that's the kind of thing that I don't you can't fix that in a single season I think this is all going to be about gearing the team up with 2026 as the point to to start being successful pretty quickly and obviously a big part of that will come down to the Audi power unit but for Sauber as an organization to now have quite a long lead time before it needs to hit the goals that Audi will set that's the best thing about this deal for them because there is a lot of work to do. But unlike some F1 projects, they ha- I don't think it's a completely unrealistic timeline for the team specifically. We can talk about the engine side of things. I think that's a slightly different kettle of fish. Well, that's my question on the team thing. Okay, there's the new engine regs in 2026. That's when Audi will enter. But it's not... Well, is it going to be a huge aerodynamic overhaul that year as well? Is it going to be a whole new set of regs so you can build up towards that? Or... Will it be a continuation, broadly speaking, of the of the chassis and the aero regs just with a new engine in? Because in that case, they've they've really got to get going now, Sauber, if if they want to be successful from the chassis side of it in 2026. So there will be changes, won't there? And part of that will be driven by the the power unit changes as well. The fact that you're going to have um, you'll, you'll have lost the um, the MGUH from from the engine, but have a much more powerful MGUK means that you've lost that sophisticated in effect anti-lag system but you've now got an engine that's probably even talkier than it is 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 at the moment that will change things there's all sorts of talk about what exactly you want to have as the gizmos around the cars they talked about like um how you do uh, whether you can generate from the from the front axle as well as the rear axle and how you want to do things i don't think they're necessarily going to go in the direction that some people want them to go with increased electrification but there will be a lot of changes around the car from a mechanical point of view, a powertrain point of view, and an aerodynamic point of view as well. But nothing compared to what we've seen this year, right? It, 21 to 22. It's, it's not going to be a revolution, certainly. It's like version 2.0, I think, of, of this 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 set of rules. Um, certainly bigger than... You remember, we had obviously the big um, aero change in 17, and then in 19, we had that stuff around like the, the, the front wing and that kind of thing. And that was almost like a tweak within a, a rule set. It will be bigger than that, certainly, a new set of engine regs just 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 dictates that it will be a, a a big shift. I don't think it'll be quite the same as the 22 rules, but it is a big opportunity nonetheless. And that's what I mean to having that whatever it will be four years effectively of lead time to to get Sauber and the and everything there up to scratch is a big opportunity. As long as Audi hasn't underestimated the challenge of turning a team based in Switzerland into one, but there is ultimately there is a reason that most of the teams are based in the UK. And with the exception of a couple of teams based in Italy, that has always been talked about as a restriction for Sauber. So Audi will need to combat that. And it's also quite a remote location, Hinville, in Switzerland, relatively speaking. It's not close to a big city. Okay, you can 
get to places relatively quickly, but it's it's a difficult place to sometimes convince people to work. Is it 15 years ago when BMW were there, everyone used to bang on about Sauber's facility, Hinville, state of the art. They had all those, do you remember they had all those like mega supercomputers or something that took up like a whole warehouse and stuff. And so you kind of still think that is true, but is it? Or do, do we think they've fallen behind at Hinville? Is that the, inevitable the because of the Mercedes and the Red Bull making progress? The wind tunnel is still one of the best in Europe, isn't it? Yeah, the Kimi Raikkonen Memorial Wind Tunnel, as we like to call it, <laughs> because uh, that was what it was paid for. It was paid for by him being sold to McLaren all those, all those years ago, really? and they've kept it up to date. So that. that was one of the big reasons why BMW bought them. So that was a really great strategic move. By but like I say, that's Sauber. 20 years ago now, yeah, so I don't yeah. know if that's still... But it's, it's still a very good wind tunnel. Audi, their sports prototype program, used that wind tunnel on a customer basis. And it's oh. also quite a productive side business because obviously you can only use your wind tunnel for F1 so much of the time now. So it's a great commercial thing for them to exploit as well. So that's good. It's difficult because th- there was discontinuity with that team because when BMW pulled out, they had some difficult years and it gradually got worse and worse financially. So there was underinvestment. So there has been a need to invest to improve those facilities, which they have done over the past five years. It's not state-of-the-art on everything at the moment. There's still money more that needs more money that needs to be spent in order to to do that. But it's it's a reasonable starting point, I, I would say. And certainly yeah, the wind tunnel is a it is a good strength, but it's not a turnkey winning Grand Prix team. I guess that's the next question, Jack, because Audi have said they want to win within three years. So 26, 27, 28. Do you think that's possible with Sauber? I don't know why they've said it. What team has ever said that and actually achieved it? I mean, you know, obviously we remember famously the the BAR um, shenanigans where they wanted, they were going to win the first race, did they even say? And then they didn't score a point all season in, in 1999. But I think that we're we're at such a early point in this, in particular the cost cap and the development reductions phase of the world of Formula One that it might just be doable. Right now, you think no, that's it's too ambitious, especially with budgets and especially with if they'd have come in five years ago, would they be winning by now? Not, not, not for my reckoning because everyone is so sort of established and the budgets are in there and you know we've seen Toyota and BMW all come in with their huge budgets and not succeed now budget isn't the thing and you can't just throw loads of money at it and think you'll win you have to do it sensibly now and I think that will streamline things a lot and plus, if, if Sauber aren't doing that great in the next couple of years and they have more development time than Mercedes and, and the like, it's doable. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough ask. I don't know why they put themselves these time limits on, but I guess maybe you have to, with if you're a major manufacturer, to convince the board that you, we should enter Formula One. You can't say, well, we probably won't win for a decade but let's do it anyway, please. I think it. I think it's. Um, it speaks to a little bit of corporate talk, doesn't yeah. it? I think internally these companies love three-year plans. So I think. <laughs> I think it's that. I think it's okay within because I think the exact phrasing in in Belgium when they announced this uh, um, at Spa was that they want to be uh, was it they want to be competitive within three years. But as, as Ed points out. That, that only that only means fighting for wins. If you're a money manufacturer like Audi, you're not coming in to be like, oh well, you know, top ten that'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Come in, spend a load of money, get some top, get some points. That's just not going to be good enough. So they've they've set themselves up for ultimately uh, they set themselves up for failure if they don't fight for wins within three years because we have literally got their own ambitions to hold against them now as a yardstick, and that's the mistake that that they just 
manufacturers love making. But then you know what? If they come in and they don't say this and they're not winning after three years, we're calling them a failure anyway. So whether we well, call, I wouldn't do it. In, I don't think it would have been three years. I feel like because that's just not that long. The happens. thing is, the thing is though, is it also creates a frame of reference, doesn't it? Because my philosophy on on this is clearly they're coming in to win at some point. But <laughs> yeah. I, I always like the approach of saying, well, we're going to do everything to work towards winning. Put one foot in front of the other, and we'll get there. And we won't set a timeline on it. And yeah, people will still say if they haven't won in four or five years, this is a failure. But I just think it slightly changes that dynamic and it eliminates that temptation to hold yourself to a timeline and make stupid decisions because you can't necessarily say we'll definitely win on this time scale. All you can do is say we'll do all the right things to to get there. So I think it's more that kind of outlook and that temperamental thing that is impacted by this. Do you, do you think they can do it? Do you think within three years they can be winning Grand Prix? They can. I suspect they won't. It's possible. But I think all they can do is just make the right moves. You can't expect to certainly win. I wouldn't rule it out, but more likely it'll take a little bit longer. And we're talking about winning on merit, not a an Ocon Alpine-style yeah, yeah. hungry win last year. Well, well, if they didn't say within three years we want to be doing this, but I think the, a lot of people would be applying the context of other manufacturers. So you'd look at it and just say, well, it took Honda, I think, until their fifth season to win as an engine manufacturer. It took Alpine or Renault, Renault slash Alpine six seasons to win, and that was a fluked win. Um, it took it took Mercedes until their third season as a works team to win again, and they'd inherited a championship winning organisation. Obviously, I know it wasn't that simple with the the Braun Mercedes transition, but I think if they didn't self impose that kind of thing, where it's like within three years we have to be competitive, everyone I think everyone sensible I think would be operating with recent history shows us that three to five years is if if it's longer than that it's a problem. But they've just done that thing where they've put that. It's not a hard stop. It's not like that's it. Give up after the end of your third season. If you haven't won, go home. But it's just that thing of it's a kind of a pointless reference to give yourself, basically. A lot will depend on what happens in the next few years because this is the the ramp up phase. Yeah, they'll still be using Ferrari engines. They'll still be called Alfa Romeo for one more season. But this Audi project will be starting. There'll be capital investment in. So we think it'll be Alfa Romeo. Ne- next season for 2023 yeah, then, then probably two years of Sauber probably Sauber we know it's only one more year of Alfa Romeo I assume it'll be Sauber for two years 24 and, then and 25 Audi. and then Audi they haven't officially confirmed that but that seems the most logical thing but all the time it will still be Audi in the background so it's about those improvements and we've seen from Alfa Romeo this year they've not kept up in terms of development this year etc okay, there's a bit of a caveat there that they were down on the weight limit. And obviously, if you're down at the weight limit at the start, that's not a gain you can make thereafter. Their area development hasn't been too bad. Decent upgrade recently. They were a top 10 runner on merit at Cota, but they didn't deliver on that. And that's one of the problems. This team hasn't been great in recent years in delivering on what pace it has had. So they need to sharpen up operationally, keep improving, and they, they can do that. And that's what it's going to take. And if you keep doing that, your form will keep going upwards. But at what point that upward curve intersects with winning and winning regularly, it's not entirely in your hands. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on whatever happens, but uh, they can win. Whether it can be that quickly is another matter. It's time for the latest edition of Flat Out with Mika Hakkinen. Now, Mika can regularly be found on Fast and Loose, the Formula One post-show on AMP, where commentary meets comedy. But we also have the chance to catch up with him ahead of the final races of the season. Mika, joining me here in the USA, it's a great place to be, isn't it? 
It's unbelievable. I tell you, the fans in USA, they are completely flat out and enjoying about this great event. And, 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 uh, and they, they are good, good, good fans. And I, of course, I have experiences of racing in Indianapolis with the Formula One. I, I was lucky to get the good success over there winning that Grand Prix. So, so I do have a good, beautiful memories uh, racing in US. And winning that race allowed you to retire. That was the last thing you needed to achieve. That, that is correct. I tell you what, it was. Uh, I retired 2001 in Formula One, and and uh, I had a couple of Grand Prix. What I, what I always wanted to win, and in my last year, I won the Silverstone Grand Prix. I won the Indianapolis. I won the Montreal Grand Prix. So those are really important for me to put it in my in my book. <laughs> I like the idea you've got a literal book with all the yeah. uh, achievements. It would need to be a very big book with, uh, with, yeah. with your achievements. But it was interesting, that Indianapolis one, because I know you've talked before about the fact you knew this was one you were going to win. And I know that season was difficult. You'd had a lot of bad luck as well that year with races you could have got better results in. But that does seem to be a quite magical weekend that you must remember quite fondly. Yeah, it, it was an incredible weekend. It was an incredible weekend. Uh, I didn't... I didn't. Uh, I, I remember. I got the even penalty, if I remember correctly. You know, uh, so so my starting grid position was dropped a couple of places, uh, uh, but but I was able to have. A, I was able to get a really good start and able to get a good tactic for the race with the team. You need also a little bit luck, of course. You know, sometimes you need a little bit luck, uh, but that's not everything. You're gonna rely on that for luck all the time. You know, you need to you need to focus. You need to maximize your performance in a highest level and sometimes something happening and that, that race particularly in Indianapolis I got I got the victory there uh, for many reasons I have to ask because that penalty was for jumping a red light at the pit exit so have you been jumping any red lights in the USA this time of course not <laughs> <laughs> you've learned your lesson that was that was a harsh penalty wasn't it because it was really it was really tight it wasn't a ridiculous no no bit of no, no no it, it was incredible. and what it was it was quite a silly thing what happened you know because all the cars were lined up in the end of the end of the pit lane and and the lights of the the, the exit lights for the pit lane there was only light on the left hand side and it was really low so i was not able to see when i was going on the right hand side i was not able to see if the lights are red or, or green. But it's a long time ago, luckily, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, certainly a, a, a great and memorable win. But one thing I wanted to ask you about that's kind of connected to that, obviously you're a McLaren-affiliated driver, still Daniel Ricciardo. He's in an interesting situation. He's set to have a year not racing next year. It's not exactly the same as the year off that was retirement that, that you had. But I wonder what you think of what he's been doing and how he might approach the different perspective you'll get from that that year off because he could it could yeah, end up being the same as yours whereby I, I it's, do, a, it's a pre-retirement if you like yeah yeah i put my position a little bit different there because i was already two times world champion so i did achieve my goals uh, i knew my power what i have i knew my experience what i have and and daniel has a different situation he's, he's his performance has been dropping he's not really going flat out out there uh, so so he, people are not sure with him. Is he quick? Is he okay? Uh, and and uh, I think that that could make it difficulties to having a year off and coming back, because if you have an issue, if you are not quick enough, there is always some kind of explanation, reason for it. And I don't. I I felt that he has not given this 
information very clear to to media, to fans, to to team. Uh, so I think that's a bit scary moment. You have to know why why I'm not able to get the maximize my performance same level than my teammate, or is the teammate so good that way he's just not able to match it? But all drivers, we are humans, you know. We can we can challenge ourselves to put it absolutely on a limit. We can study the data, computers and data, understand why we are losing, why we cannot make it, why we cannot be quicker. So, from my experience, having situation when I did retire in, let's say, or the team said that way, Mika, have a sabbatical, have a, have a one year off, and then come back. Because you said you were going to retire, and that, and Ron Dennis persuaded you to. Do it this Absolutely. Way. And then I thought, okay, if you feel like that, I appreciate it, then I will see what happens. But I did recognize after three, four months when 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 uh, uh, season started and I was I was uh, Monaco, wherever, wherever I was, I, I was definitely feeling like, no way, I want to go back there. I cannot. Because the, it requires so much energy, so much power from your part. Body and and psychologically a lot of energy, and I knew that way. It doesn't matter if I have a one one year off. I cannot I cannot come back. So I already knew that in you know, a halfway through the season that way I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. So if Daniel if he decides to 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 have in a one year off, uh, I, from experience I know once you leave from this sport, normally you should not should not come back because you cannot perform out there and, and thinking about celebrity or not. You have to go flat out every second. What do you make of Daniel's struggles? Because it's been a very particular couple of years for him. It's clear there are some car characteristics he can't get on top of. He can see what Lando's doing, but he can't consistently do it. I know sometimes drivers get into cars they, they don't get on with and it can be difficult. This seems very, very extreme though, doesn't it? How surprised are you that he's found it so difficult because he's worked incredibly hard? To try yeah, and make uh, it work, and McLaren have as well. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree with you. It's definitely not easy. And and uh, again, it, when I was racing, we had a lot of testing. We were testing those cars constantly. The car was tailor-made for you. And and now the cars are not really tailor-made for you because you are not allowed to do testing. So the engineers has to do you know, a lot of calculations to able in a, back in a factory to build the car for the coming season. Uh, and again, if the driver complains during a weekend, some some driving uh, balance problem with the car, they do change the car. They do change the springs. They change the aerodynamics. They change the the differential drivabilities, the braking balances, pressures of the tires. Well, those are also quite limited these days. What you allow to put. So the things what you can do, no, it's very little. And if you do have a driving style which is aggressive in an entry uh, then then you need to build the setup that way the car still handles nicely in the mid corner and exit uh, but if you if you cannot change the geometries of the front suspension or rear suspension it, it makes your life really complicated so that what that means then you have to adapt for this this issue and adapting uh, your driving style if the car doesn't work it's it's awful it's not fun at all but if your teammate can do it, then you can do it. <laughs> well, that, that's the really difficult thing because he he understands what Lando's doing, but just that thing of replicating, and obviously he, he struggles with that rear end if it 
because uh, obviously you have to work the car quite hard on the corner entry. It obviously feels like a bit of instability. He seems to dial in a little bit of extra understeer to deal with that. So it's just this difficult circle, isn't it? He, he does seem to have learned a lot about his driving, though, taking a really deep dive into how he approaches things and his strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, it, very complicated. It's, honestly, it's such a complicated issue. Uh, I mean, it's easy to say, just keep your foot down and stop thinking. You know, just drive. Let the engineers do their job and just go flat out and... It's easy to say that uh, a driver sometimes getting really, when they get very experienced, they're becoming also technically very good. And and sometimes drivers start looking solutions solutions for himself. And then when that happens, you for, forget to drive the car. Uh, so so they, they, they can be such a many different reasons why the thing's not, not working for him like it should. Uh, but first of all, he's a he's a great character, nice nice guy. Uh, I, I I feel like he he he's good for the Formula One. It's nice he's here. Uh, so uh, let's hope something happens and he can continue uh, Formula One in the future. That one point you made about the fact when you retired, you'd you'd done everything, you'd achieved everything twice basically. So there was nothing more to do. But Daniel's in a really interesting situation because at his best, he's been good enough to fight for world championships. But he's never ever had the car, and that's—I mean—you were never in that position of, of having to face the possibility of retiring without having that. But that must make—that must be the big difference, mustn't it? He'll be sitting there thinking, "I can still do it. I just want my one chance." Yeah, it's easy. It, it, you are right again, uh, and and that's why, like personally, what I decided when I joined the Formula One, I was a couple of years with the team Lotus, learning to understand the business. Uh, and then joining with the team, McLaren, which had an unbelievable history. You had all the great champions been racing with that team. And I thought, when I look in the history, there was plenty of other teams who sent in offers to me. But I look at their history, I was looking, no, 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 no. They don't have a really strong history. So I want to I wanna focus with this team in a long term. And this long term, people learn to know who you are. You learn to know the engineers. They learn to understand your driving technique, and they they know in long term what you need to have a car to win. And I think I think uh, I think Daniel changed his team quite often. He was with the Red Bull. He was with uh, with Renault at that time, McLaren, and and you know changing teams. It's I always think it's a risk. People don't learn to know who you are. <laughs> well, let's. Well, they learn to know who you are, but but understanding what is your what is your driving technique, and it's not so simple to 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 see that, to explain that, and studying the data, and and to do that, it requires sometimes a long time. No, that's an interesting point, particularly with what you were saying earlier with the the lack of testing. So a yeah. year is not as much running as it as it used to be. So yeah. it must be must be a, a very very difficult one. We have got Mexico coming up this weekend. Now I talked about your famous Indianapolis win, not such a famous result. But you had a good sixth place there in '92 in the in the Lotus. Do you remember much about those early visits to to Mexico for F1? Yeah, I do actually. I, I do actually. It was an incredible time to go in there. It was a, such a Great emotional uh, trip because you know flying all you know flying over there first of all it was incredible when you see this big city, big city coming and and uh, and uh, it was also a challenge for racing cars and drivers because the altitude of the racetrack was quite high, 
So again, physically very demanding. I was, I remember, I was so finito after was it Friday practice. Friday practice, I was thinking, how I able to continue Saturday, Sunday, flat out. And and uh, something happened. Was it just a simple hot bath or something? Something simple thing happened, you know. And next day I woke up Saturday, I was feeling absolutely 100%. And I knew I can do it. And and uh, and uh, it just worked out really well. It was a good, very good toast couple of years when I went to Mexico with uh, with the Lotus it was a good good time I really enjoyed the city is fascinating it's it's really booming let's call it this way but uh, I, of course Mexico racetrack is incredible the fans are incredible uh, and uh, but again racing driver to go there you have to really prepare yourself 100% your logistics uh, physically have to be good condition uh, many little things what you need to take in consideration. And that year you had the sixth place there in 92 in the Lotus. That 92 Lotus was quite a good little car, wasn't it? How did you enjoy that? Was it one you got on with? Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a very, very nice racing car. Uh, I think it, the aerodynamics were pretty good. They were very good aerodynamics. Engineers were great. Uh, I think that our Probably our biggest weakness at that time, we didn't have exactly enough horsepower. The fighting against uh, those big V12 and engines, engines. Uh, so, so we didn't have enough power, losing on a straight line, a little bit of speed. Uh, then we had a, some fundamental problems with the balance of the car. You know, uh, we had a quite an interesting uh, suspension uh, design in our car. And I wasn't so excited about it, but uh, engineers thought this is the way to go. Uh, but yes, we had some good results. We started having consistency in our performance. Uh, reliability was definitely issue. Other big teams were testing constantly all the time. And of course, our financial situation in team was so low, we couldn't do testing enough and develop the car enough. A lot of little details again there which didn't didn't match 100% but but light end of the tunnel and allowed you to show your speed and impress McLaren and Williams actually were interested as well weren't they so an important car for your career yes absolutely it, it was it was a it was a no regrets it was a, it was a good year uh, and and uh, that was exactly right what you say that way the big teams did recognize about this young guy and and other teams also it was it was it was really fun. You know, at that time, it, it was not emails. It was fax machine running flat out. <laughs> you know, coming paper after paper from the team said, oh, we want you. And, you know, this would be the deal. And and I was just looking, all right, this is a lucky day. I like the fact that even your fax machine runs flat out. <laughs> it's very on brand even then. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> well, we're really looking forward to the race, so thanks for your time, Mika, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. And you can catch Mika live immediately after every race on AMP, a new live radio app where anyone can host their own show. Every race Sunday, listen in as hosts Mika, comedian Will Arnett and Michelle Beadle are joined by a rotating list of F1 insiders, commentators and drivers. Listen, drop comments in chat or call in to join the conversation. 
AMP is live radio reimagined. Download the AMP app by clicking the link in the description and follow at AMP Presents F1 so you never miss a show. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Jack, you've seen how Audi works up close with its Formula E programme, for those who don't know. I can't imagine people won't be watching Formula E religiously. Jack is uh, is the, uh, the Formula unfair. E commentator as, as well. Some people watch. I watch Formula E when the uh, when the times on the website are accurate. Uh, but anyway, uh, what, what can you expect from Audi and F1 based on what you've seen from their programme, which obviously has finished now in, in Formula E? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in, in Formula E, broadly speaking, you, you have to say they... Well, they underdelivered in that they should have won, to my mind, at least two or three championships with with Lucas Degrassi. There was a lot of uh, they won one, but ironically, before they were Audi, I think I think they were apt at the at the time in season three. But um, I think that yeah, I think that operationally they 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 were very very strong. The power unit they built was very strong, but it was a little bit unreliable. That was their that was their main issue there. And I'm just interested to see how they, because we've seen them in, I've seen them in Formula E. We've seen them be incredibly strong in the World Endurance Championship and win Le Mans loads of times. And so we know that they know what they're doing, but it it's whether, and it's that it's that integration that Scott was talking about earlier, that currently the everything kind of runs out of their test facility in Neuburg, which is a, you know, big old facility, big factory, proper test track and everything there. It'll be so interesting to see whether they, when they have those facilities that can win Formula E World Championships, win World Endurance Championships and Le Mans, but for F1, they're basing themselves somewhere else. And is there going to be a huge amount of staff crossover? Is everyone going to leave Neuburg and go live in Hinville? Or is it going to be Hinville is like the... Hinville's the... Hinville's the... What's the word I'm looking for? Hinville's the endstone... And Neuberg's the Viri. Is that going to be the vibe? So I think that it's this is a totally separate operation, I think, almost in a way, to the way that they've run Formula E and, and LMP1 in the past. They've obviously been tooling up the, the facility at, uh, in Germany to have, a proper, to have a proper engine division there and make sure they do that that properly but the Renault example is a good one because that integration between Enstone and Viri is something that they have massively under, under delivered on for several years and it has been a a cornerstone of the of the new technical leadership at Renault and Alpine to make sure that that's better utilized so in this in this new era led by technical director Matt Harmon he 
every, everyone in that team says that has been his big focal point is make sure that that the way that they're designing the car and designing the power unit are completely in in tandem to maximize it so that they're not boxing themselves in in terms of design po- prospects and development possibilities on on the car side but at the same time they aren't um restricting themselves with the power unit and that is a that is obviously a really difficult um balance to strike but they've got better at it this is the best year they've done it and we've seen with Red Bull and Honda it is a very good example of two two very far far apart organizations um that do find a way to make it work and part of the way that they do they they did that and do that is that there there was a Honda facility in in Milton Keynes I believe that is where the majority of the energy recovery system work was done the hybrid side whereas Sakura was doing the internal combustion engine there there are ways to do it and make it work and th- there there will be a huge amount of effort going in to this with between between Audi and Sauber and I might be massively at risk here of exposing my non F1 knowledge but I believe Audi and Sauber have history of working together didn't what didn't they use the the Sauber wind tunnel to develop what the, the one of yeah, the yeah. Mon cars yeah so they've got a pre-existing commercial arrangements and they've got some idea about working together yeah so it's not like he already said it about 20 minutes ago okay so 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 it's not uh <laughs> i was being polite <laughs> so so you know that that's not uh, that's not an out and out working relationship but it gives them they'll, they'll have an idea of one another and, and inter- integration will, will be will, will be all of it it will the the success this the project will succeed or fail based on how they bridge that gap and it's not going to be easy but at the same time, Audi will have done their due diligence on this, that they wouldn't have gone into this project without thinking, okay, this is a hurdle. How do we clear it in the best way possible? Yeah, and obviously when they had the BMW Sauber thing, it was two campus again because there was the BMW engine facility in towards Munich, I think. So it's like three, three and a half hours, something like that, by car which seemed to work reasonably well. But then again, that was a very different era of Formula One. So yeah, that integration is going to be the, uh, the the big challenge. And inevitably, it's going to take a bit of time, isn't it? That That's the thing. Once, No matter what you do in the next couple of years, just that properly working, day-to-day developing the car while running one is going to be when you're tested to the limit and all those systems are, are loaded up fully. When does the cost cap begin to apply for out? Can they right now spend you know all the money they want on an engine development and stuff how does that cost cap part work and then compared to obviously when they join as a team in 2026 then they'll obviously be under cost cap regulations but for from from the for the next three years can they just go nuts and spend all the money they want or are they held accountable in in any way in terms of making an entry well there's two cost caps that are relevant for them one of which is the team cost cap which will apply because there's rules in there not just about your spending but your capital expenditure etc etc will will govern what Sauber can do so that one's all locked in but they could do what they want in Neuburg right no even that is uh, is limited now if they do any kind of support services for the team the actual chassis side, then that, technically speaking, should be factored into the the cost cap. But the engine project, obviously, is limited as well. You've got uh, three ramp-up years, haven't you, Uh, where it's, I forget the exact numbers, it's like $95 million. I'll check the numbers. So the cost cap kicks in on both accounts, so they can't spend unlimited. Which was one of the big arguing points about the 2026 power unit regs. It was all about how do you make it so that any new manufacturer comes in isn't being hugely disadvantaged because they don't have the infrastructure that the existing manufacturers have they don't have the they don't have the the experience of either running the engine developing the engine or whatever so what extra allowances can you give those give them in the years preceding entering the championship just to make sure that they're not 
um, left behind straight away because otherwise, as a few people have talked about on the FIA side and the F1 side, and even some of the existing manufacturers as well, no team is going to, or no manufacturer is going to sign up to build an engine that then then just be made to look silly because they they were starting this uh, you know they were starting a 100 meter sprint 40 meters behind everybody else. Well, it would be the engine equivalent of Marussia and Caterham and whoever it was. Well, exactly. Back in the day, and yeah. then look what an impression HRT, they made. What HRT. an impression <laughs> they made. Um, so so yeah, there there will be elements there that give them. It would be wrong to say it's a head start because they're not. They're starting on the back. They're starting on the back foot. But it's just to mitigate the disadvantages without giving them too much of a head start. Because one of the things that Audi will be able to do that the other manufacturers won't be able to do on the engine side is be fully focused on the 2026 power unit regs, which is an advantage. Uh, ultimately, it was Mercedes' foresight in splitting the existing projects and the 2014 projects that allowed them to get a jump so effectively in the turbo hybrid era. Does Audi have exactly the same opportunity here for 2026? No, not quite. But it is an opportunity that they can make the most of. But this just comes back to that whole integration thing. If you can just make sure that you're working in as effective way as possible within the restrictions of the cost cap, you could have a, a situation here where as an organisation you are giving yourselves the best possible chance of absolutely smashing it with new regulations in 26. And just to tidy myself up from earlier, because <laughs> <laughs> I I say I remember the numbers now, I've double-checked double the numbers. Yeah, the cost cap is $130 million per year for power units from 2026 onwards. Before that, you've got $95 million a year for 23, 24, 25, although new power unit manufacturers gets 5 million extra in 2023 and then 10 million extra for each of 2024 and 2025. So Audi will be eligible for that. But yeah, the, the bottom line is they are covered by cost caps on both scores. They can't spend unlimited yeah. because obviously the regs had to be structured to stop people from doing that or it would have been a little bit uh, a little bit unfair. Yeah, not fair to overspend on cost caps. No, nobody would do that. Nobody would. Uh, Scott, moving swiftly on from that dangerous subject. <laughs> I, I haven't overspent on any cost cap. Innocent gov. Yeah. <laughs> He bought me some drinks last night. I think he has overspent on his cost cap. That's very kind that, of him. That, that was, uh, we got carried away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you are. Well, it's not coming across in your podcasting. That's the uh, that's a good thing. But Scott, we should just have a talk about the sister project, for want of a, a better word, the Porsche F1 idea. Now, for a long time, the Porsche F1 thing seemed to be much more advanced. And then Audi came up on the rails and, and went past it. And it's now pretty much lapped it by getting its team acquisition announced as well. So has Porsche given up? Is this still possible? I think there is still a possibility for a Porsche F1 project. But um, exactly what form it will take is just less clear than ever, really. As I understand it, Porsche haven't given up on the prospect of coming in and, and buying a stake in a team. I think that's still very much at the centre of what they want to do. The problem is, is they want to have their cake and eat it. And it's a seller's market in Formula One at the moment. So they're kind of calling the shots when they don't really have the the the, the power or the clout to. One of the restrictions being, unlike Audi, Porsche is not tooled up to do its own engine. And that is a huge limiting factor. If otherwise they would be able to go to McLaren, Alpha Tauri, Haas, Williams, which I think are the four options that they have for 2026, and be a little bit more pushy. But as it is at the moment, I think they need to drop their demands a little bit. I think they need to accept that if they want to be in Formula 1 in 2026, it's unlikely to be with the amount of control that they want. But we don't know we don't know how much the situations at a team like Alpha Tauri is going to change in the next few years. I don't want to speculate too much on, on this and make it sound like, oh, this is a great opportunity for someone, given the circumstances around it. But 
the passing of someone like Dietrich Mateschitz will have an impact in some way on the autonomy and future of the two Red Bull Formula One teams. And there are always whispers every now and again of whether or not Alpha Tauri or in its Toro Rosso days is up for sale. And there are some suggestions at the moment that Alpha Tauri, it might not be officially up for sale, but could be sold. So they'd be willing, they'd be, they'd be open to that. And you would have to think that an organisation like Porsche or Andretti um, would be very interested in acquiring something like Alpha Tauri if they could. So I think I, I think that there are options on the table for Porsche. They definitely haven't given up. They are still in talks with teams, but they might have to be a little bit less picky in terms of saying, okay, well, we do this on our terms because that didn't really work out with Red Bull. The Alpha Tauri situation is interesting because there was a time, a long time ago, where that team was officially up for sale. Then it officially wasn't up for sale, but they were open to offers. But one thing that Dietrich Mateschitz had always made very clear was that it had to be kept in Faenza, where that team has been since the Minardi days. Now, whether that condition would still exist, I don't know. We can only speculate on that. But certainly Alpha Tauri could be an appealing acquisition for any team, even basing it where it is, because they've invested in their facility quite a lot over, gonna, over the I, years. I was really impressed with I went to their facility in March just just for fun, really, because uh, that's my sort of fun. And um, I was really actually quite impressed. I haven't been to a huge amount of F1 factories, to be honest, like Mercedes and uh, McLaren and... So going to Avatari, I wasn't sure really what to expect, but it is it's a proper it's a proper facility there, as is obviously demonstrated by the fact that they are a pretty good team. And you know, last year, for my money, they had probably the fourth quickest car last season, and definitely underdelivered in the races. Race winning Formula One team in the modern era, exactly. And uh, the um, and the old Minardi factory is still there. All of like the HR and communication and stuff is all in the old factory, which was quite which was quite cool. But um, yeah, they're 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 an interesting one. They've come quite a long way. They did have a point when they were ramping back up after the customer cars were, were banned and they couldn't run Red Bull kit and they had oh. design offices kind of in there. You know the the hospitality thing that they use for testing? That was actually sat in the car park as a design office <laughs> at one stage. <laughs> but they've come a long way since then. And now I think there's been uh, there's a new building, I think, in the works at the moment. I'm, I can't remember exactly what the mm. timeline is on that. But just this slow drip feed of evolution of that team. So it's it's one that's worth worth looking at for them in, in, in the future. And I do like the idea of if this is going to happen using the Audi engine for a group project, that always made sense to me. Yeah. And I think that is most likely what Porsche will have to do now. Because the reason they wanted to have the partnership with with Red Bull is that Porsche wasn't in a position to contribute properly. It wasn't in a position to set up its own F1 engine program. And for some reason, the Volkswagen Group were so keen on having two brands in Formula One, they signed off on the two brands doing it completely different ways, which a lot of people in F1 thought that's such a strange way of doing it, but so be it. And I think the collapse of the Red Bull-Porsche talks will probably push them back to doing it in this joint way. It will just mean that one of them will have to make sacrifices that whatever team, if Porsche indeed does get a team, whether it's its own 11th entry or taking over an existing one, partner of Andretti, whatever they are able to do, they will not be calling the shots on engine design, which takes us back to that whole point of integration one of those Volkswagen teams, if they are using the same engine, will not have that level of integration because they will basically, it'll be one engine going into two different cars that will be designed in a different way because they will have different ideas about how to do things. Audi, you know, integration and building an engine. And when do they, when, when is a new entry, do you start to think about drivers? If you're a top team and you're coming in in three years time and you want to win races, you got to be on the phone to Lando Norris right now. 
Or Lucas Degrassi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rene, Rene Rast. Rene Rast. Well, he's, no, he's gone to McLaren, so maybe you'll see him in a McLaren. To replace Lando Norris because he's Audi bound. Yeah. <laughs> it all adds up. <laughs> yeah, but no, but in also, who do you see driving for them, or is it way too far out to sit? Because contracts these days are blooming long in F1. And, People and are signing, like, Oscon signed that four year deal. Norris is on what? He's on, he was on, did he sign up at five? To 20, 25. Yeah. Verstappen signed to the end of 28. At yeah. Red Bull. Obviously, there will be lots of exit opportunities within that. So um, if you want a good driver, you got you got to get cracking. Especially as the, the the way Formula One is now, you see a lot of this. I feel like, obviously, we saw what Schumacher was able to do at Ferrari. And then I think the next example of that was really what Hamilton was able has been able to do at Mercedes. And one of the things that has maybe reduced Hamilton's um, adaptability or the the range of what what he can work in as a driver is he's got really really good at making sure that the team gives him what he needs and you can only do that if you're at an organization for a long time Verstappen's building exactly the same thing at uh, Red Bull Leclerc wants to build the same thing at Ferrari Norris is kind of hoping he can do that at McLaren but it's- and that sort of and that Ricardo's insinuation in your interview with him was that is kind of how it's going with Norris because Norris hasn't tried loads of other cars he's just driving the McLaren the whole time and they know what he wants from it. Yeah, exactly. So you just end up building this relationship that is the cornerstone of that that program. I kind of, I, I don't really like the word, but F1 has obviously adopted this whole franchise value thing. And I think that all of the main teams now, they certainly were trying to all have their own franchise drivers. It's Verstappen at Red Bull. It's Leclerc at Ferrari it's Hamilton at Mercedes and in the future it will be Russell at Mercedes it's Norris at McLaren so Audi will ne- we will need to be looking now and saying right we we want an absolute cast iron top driver to lead this project so your first port of call there is like right okay identify the best available talents or the best talents rather then look at their availability and Honestly, if I'm Audi and I'm looking at Norris with a contract to the end of 2025 and his stock is only going to increase, there is a question mark over what McLaren can achieve. I I think he has to be the number one pick. Yeah. And then it comes down to that team needs to, in the interim, convince. Because if you're trying to convince someone to join for 2026, you'll need to have shown progress before you're properly uh, Audi-fied. I mean, they've got Valtteri Bottas there. He, he turns, what, 37 in, in 2026, so it's not impossible he could still be there. A lot of top he team wants experience. To. He, he did say this back at Spa, that there's no reason why he... He doesn't see any reason why he couldn't still be racing in F1 in 2026. And obviously, at that point, he was being quite careful because the Audi Salva stuff wasn't official, um, but he was very much open to the idea, shall we say. He's a yeah, nice banker driver to have around the place. I'm not surprised he's open to the idea of, of hanging in, but I can see him racing in F1 still, but... There's there's many years of demonstrable evidence that Valtteri Bottas isn't the guy that's going to go out and win you the title. And if that's what Audi want in 26 slash 27 slash 28, you can't be. Oh, it's all right. We will keep. We've got we've got Bottas. But if he but if he's if he's partnered alongside Orlando Norris, that that is and Bottas is still at the level he's at now. That's a that's a very good combination. I think that's that, right. That's why I see him as a good banker. In, a, in that he's there. He's in the fold. So they they've. They've got an option there. They might think there's there's better oh, options God, around the thirty seven year old Valtteri Bottas not, not as leader for the for the for the for the for their team that's coming in and means business. But the first couple of years it's not the worst idea. But it depends who is available ultimately. And mm. they will want a they will want a German driver in the team. Oh they, really? I, I'm sure about it. they've already hinted 
that if there are good German drivers around, I I think they would Holtenberg love. Holtenberg will only be forty eight <laughs> by that point. <laughs> I think I think they'd love the idea of a competitive Mick Schumacher, but I'm, unfortunately, I think Haas and Ferrari would have loved the idea of a competitive Mick Schumacher, and we all would have, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the uh, and the problem for Audi on that score is if Mick was genuinely in their scopes, there's a chance that he might not be on the grid between now and then. So it then becomes, and I. I hate to say this because I think someone like Joe Guan Yu has actually done a really good job as a as a rookie in Formula yeah. One this season. And actually, is he a worse prospect than Schumacher long term? Don't think he is. But if Audi has now or is taking control of the Sauber organization, the Alfa Romeo deal ends at the end of next year. Joe's contracted to the end of next year, but maybe not beyond that. What is the likelihood of um, Schumacher having a year on the sidelines in 2023 and then becoming a Sauber driver in 2024 in anticipation of? Of the Audi, of, of the Audi takeover. That's even with a stint as reserve next year if they want to get him out. I mean, if they really want a, a German driver and they're set on it, then they kind of have to have a bit of a go with, with Mick Schumacher at this stage. Obviously. David Beckman looked all right, didn't he? I think he's a reserve driver for Andretti now in Formula E. But I'm just looking. I'm just looking at young <laughs> German drivers, and and now a list of German drivers. There's not. A, there's not a huge amount, is there? What's Nick Heidfeld up to these days? He is. Uh, Ambassador for Mahindra still, or has he stopped doing that? He was he's sort of and part of their Pininfarina program or something. Yeah. But yeah. Or Heinz Harold Frensen. He did the spa twenty four hours quite recently. There we go. Plenty of uh, options there. But yeah, I can see them maybe thinking, well, we'll have a go with Mick Schumacher then, see if they can develop him mm. and, and see how see how he comes on. He'd certainly appeal and F one as a whole would like to have Schumacher on the grid and a German driver on the grid. But I must admit, whenever there's that desire for a, a certain nationality of driver I always think it's a little bit concerning because, okay, when like BMW came in before, obviously they wanted a German driver with Williams and BMW Sauber, they had Nick Heidfeld, good option. Mercedes were keen on a German driver, well, they had Nico Rosberg and Michael Schumacher, so they, they were good options yeah. around, and, and that's the that's the the big problem, isn't it? You love uh, nationality-based driver lineups, though. You've been saying for the last week or two that Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon is the best driver lineup in Formula One next season. Exactly, I may and, not, and only because they're French. I may not quite have said that, but uh, I just don't think it's the best balanced driver lineup. You, didn't you rank um, Lewis Hamilton and George Russell as the number one driver lineup um, of twenty twenty two? So you you love same nationality. I lineups. think I went Ferrari on that. I think overall it came out as Mercedes, but I think I had Mercedes, I think I had Ferrari number You're one. You're just trying to protect your British bias now. No, it's. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. I, th- I, think, I, think I, went, I think I went Ferrari, but I don't have the tools to defend myself. But I can edit it, so uh, I can make you two both look foolish. This podcast is going to now come out terribly for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can make you two say just about anything, but we should probably make you say no more now. Jack Nichols, do you want to promote any podcasts one more time? Uh, no, no, I'm good. Excellent. Well, you can hear Jack on the BBC and on the Checkered Flag podcast. I'll throw in the uh, the plug there. So thanks very much, Jack. And Scott, do head to the race.com. Loads to read there. Also, we've got some exciting merchandise to talk about. And until November the 1st, you can get 15% off the race merchandise by using the promo code Halloween15 at checkout. Just go to shop.the-race.com and you can find t-shirts, caps, hoodies, mugs, and more. Plus our new range of F1-themed Christmas merchandise. And if you like listening to this podcast, you can listen to some of our sister podcasts, including Jack. Uh, Bring Back V10s. That's one of them, yes. The Race the, IndyCar podcast. The Race IndyCar podcast. MotoGP. MotoGP. Wow, you got a lot. Tech show as well. The tech really? show with Gary Anderson. And of course, the Formula E one. And once you finish listening to our podcast, have a look at our YouTube channel. We're off to Mexico City now, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the Mexican Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. 
The Athletic.